1: go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's s y l v a n 29.com.
2: Hello and welcome to the Longform podcast. I am your co-host Evan Ratliff. I'm here with Aaron Lammer and a very creepy-looking Max Linsky. Max, get some lights in there. Yeah.
1: Sinister.
2: I'm coming to you Sinister. guys from the dark. <laughs> turn, turn a light on. Light up your Zoom call. Who uh, lit up our podcast this week, Evan? This week, I talked to Melissa Del Bosque, who is a reporter that I've admired for a long time. She is a currently freelance investigative reporter. Uh, she has won a bunch of awards for her work, National Magazine Award, Hillman Prize... Uh, an Emmy. Um, And she's reported for a long time from the US-Mexico border. Uh, She lived in Texas for a long time. And uh, she, I feel, has covered the border in a sort of uh, multidimensional way that uh, you don't find in a lot of the stories about uh, border issues. And uh, I really want to talk to her about why she was so interested in having that as her focus and how she works. And it was a really, really great conversation. It sounds excellent. And she has a book out too, right? Yeah. Her book is, it's from a couple of years ago, but her book, which is called Bloodlines, it also sort of derives from this work. It's, uh, it's about uh, the Zetas uh, drug cartel in Mexico and uh, their rise. And then the FBI's attempt to bring down a couple of the leaders who were laundering their money through uh, quarter horse racing in the United States. It's a, it's a great book.
0: Evan, that sounds like a
2: a book that you would be oh, interested in. Oh, yes, absolutely.
0: In. That It's got a lot of uh, Ratliffian
2: yeah. themes there. If you have some books that you've been interested in
3: uh, during the pandemic, you want to tell the world about it, why not start some kind of informal book club email newsletter thing? Do it with MailChimp. They
2: make it easy. They support this show. We thank them. And now here's Evan with
3: Melissa Del Bosque.
2: Melissa, welcome to the podcast. It's really nice to see you.
3: Oh, thank you. It's good to see you. And thank you for having me.
2: Of course. I've been reading your work for a really long time. I'm really (laughs) excited to talk to you. And we were just chatting about you're currently in Mexico, living in Mexico City. Yeah. Um, And that's actually where I wanted to start because I was rereading Bloodlines, your book. And in the acknowledgments, you have a little bit about how you kind of fell in love with Mexico when you were a kid growing up in San Diego. And I was curious sort of where that came from, why you fell in love in Mexico originally, Mm -hmm. and just sort of as background to a lot of the reporting you've done, what has been your sort of relationship with the border in Mexico before you became a reporter, like when
3: you were younger? Well, I mean, growing up so close to Mexico, it was always really striking to me once you cross that line you were in a completely different culture language everything and just the richness and the differences between the two cultures being so close together and then uh, always living around the mexican culture too in san diego you know i was born in la la is the second largest mexican city in the world basically after mexico city you know so Mm -hmm. like i still never get over the fact of like when you're in Texas or Arizona or wherever, you know, you look across the street and that's like a whole different country and culture and language. Like I've never gotten over how cool that is, basically. <laughs> as simplistic you, uh... as that sounds. Yeah.
2: <laughs> did you grow up in a, in a reporting family or, or where did you get the kind of uh, nose for reporting originally?
3: Well, my dad's a contractor. He was a contractor and my mom worked retail. So definitely no sort of literary background (laughs) whatsoever. I was the first to go to college in my family. And I don't know where I got it from. I just have always noticed things, I think, and been curious about people and situations. And I think that also comes from growing up near... The border is seeing these sort of stark differences, you know, because I remember being a kid and seeing like the immigration vans driving around and there was all this undercurrent that was happening that wasn't really discussed because it was normalized because all the migrant workers would come from Mexico to pick flowers and, and things like that. And they didn't really have anywhere to live. So they'd have to live in the canyons and these sort of makeshift shacks, you know, near near our house. And so you would see people down there, you know, living in really like rudimentary situations and running from immigration trucks, but then at the same time, being totally necessary to the economy. You know, Mexicans built Southern California, basically. I mean, my father relied always on uh, people from Mexico as his work crews, you know, to build the houses the whole time I was growing up. So there was this undercurrent always of people, I guess, experiencing their situations very differently and it not really being discussed. Like, well, why why are these people having to live in a canyon, you know? Or why are these people running from this immigration (laughs) van? So I was just really curious about all that when I was a a kid. And then also going with my family to Mexico, you know, we would go to Tijuana or Rosarito or wherever just for the day or the weekend. And, um, you know, Americans have this particular way of acting in Mexico where they act like total morons. A lot of times, <laughs> you know, they go down there and they get really wasted. It's like they showed up at your friend's house and you're really embarrassed because they're just acting like real jerks. (laughs) You know, like they would never act that way. Like the sense of entitlement, you know, like they're in this bubble of entitlement, and they're just sort of floating around and waiting for people to, to serve them, you know, and I always thought that was really weird. So as a kid, I didn't understand any of it, of course, you know, I didn't understand the inequality and just the racism and all that stuff. But it was all around me. And I was just trying to understand you know what was going on there
2: so then did that manifest you know when you were in college getting interested in journalism or as a job how what was your kind of first job experience
3: well I went to uh, San Francisco State and um, I was in creative writing and poetry so that's where I started you know I wanted to be a a writer you know and write fiction and really realized that that was difficult (laughs) pretty quickly. And then I needed to figure out a way to make a living, you know, because I was always interested in storytelling and um, writing, but hadn't really thought about how to like pay the rent or survive. So, I mean, it's a ridiculous story, but I was literally sitting next to this woman in poetry class and she's like, oh, I just wrote this story and they paid me for it. You know, it's like they paid you for that. (laughs) She's like, yeah, Called journalism. So uh, <laughs> sad. But like I say, I did not come from a literary background at all. Like I literally, I had no idea how to even get into journalism. You so, know? what did you do? Well, I started working for neighborhood newspapers in San Francisco. I worked for the Western Edition newspaper.
2: I lived in Western Edition.
3: Yeah, I did too. And uh, it was really interesting because that's where Japantown is. And You know, a really, really great African-American history in the Western edition, some uh, blues singers and so forth. So I started at the neighborhood level, just writing about the neighborhood. And I loved it, you know, just learning about where I lived and the history. And then I worked for a diabetes magazine. doing health writing about diabetes. I don't have diabetes, but I learned a lot about it. And so I really started at the ground up. And, um, then I decided this is going to take me forever. So I need to go to journalism school and sort of like accelerate, you know, the process. Mm -hmm. And that's about the time I decided I wanted to be a border reporter. And, uh, Border reporter is not really a thing. It was kind of a thing around NAFTA in the late 90s. A lot of newspapers had border bureaus, especially in Texas. And this is when, you know, newspapers had money and journalism was a more thriving career choice. (laughs) Um, So I just thought that was really cool being on the border and getting to go back and forth between the two countries and to write about this really unique Area. And I thought, well, Texas is the best place to go because they've got most of the border. So I applied to UT Austin to their journalism school, got in, and then from there started uh, doing uh, internships and things down at the border. Well, actually, Odessa. <laughs> I ended up in Odessa in West uh-huh. Texas, but they circulate all the way down to Big Bend and Presidio Nohinaga. So I talked them into letting me be their border correspondent. And it was like a four-hour drive or something from there to the border. And they were like, hey, if you want to do it, knock yourself out, you know? So so I spent my internship just like driving around Big Bend and up and down that section of the border, which I loved. It was great.
2: Was there anything in particular, this moment where you said, hey, I want to be a border reporter. Was there anything that sort of prompted that? Or that was just from your experience growing up? Like, it's a sort of unusual thing to be sitting in San Francisco and saying, hey, you know what, Texas, the border, I want to be a border reporter. Do you know where that sort of came from?
3: Yeah, I saw a photo essay book. And I don't even remember who took the photographs or who the writer was. But they were both men. And it was all supposedly about the border. But it was really just Boys Town, basically, (laughs) like this stereotype of the border of it only being about prostitutes drinking and getting wasted, going back to that sense of entitlement that I experienced Mm -hmm. as a kid, you know, where I was really annoyed by that because I remember the guy was kind of a famous writer and I was like, wow, so this is how you characterize, you know, this area and you're making money off of this and this is what you're peddling to people and i just thought there's so much more there there's so much more to you know the border and and to the culture and you know i'd like to see something a lot less restrictive and a lot more reflective of what i think it really is
2: so then you sort of you did it you sort of had it working in odessa and getting to do some border reporting. But one thing I, when I was like looking back through all of your old clips, I found one of the first sort of clips where you joined the Texas Observer and it was the outgoing, I think, State House reporter saying, welcome, Melissa Doboske, who's joining now as a Statehouse reporter (laughs) who has been working for five years as a legislative aide and is now returning to journalism. So not sure I've interviewed anyone who's sort of taken a dip into politics and then come back out. What prompted that?
3: Well, after I I left UT Austin, I went to McAllen. So that was my first border reporting job.
2: Was that a newspaper?
3: Yeah, it's the McAllen Monitor. And I got there in 2000. I got there right before 9-11. And the neat thing about Texas back then, especially compared to California, was that I was used to the border wall already because that's where they built it first and because there's a navy base in San Diego and it, it's very militarized you know that's where it first started so there was always that sort of division that you could see visually you know they used old landing mats and things for the wall and it's real ugly and they didn't have that in Texas you know so that was really cool cuz you could go back and forth and the families were really united they'd Some people would live on the Mexican side, some on the U.S. side. And so the river divided the two countries and it seemed very um, Mm -hmm. fluid. And this is before all the violence hit, you know, and the newspaper kind of just let me do like I would propose my own stories, So they let me do what I wanted to do. And I was going into Mexican prisons and doing some stuff on, you know, drug lords and stuff. But. I was mostly doing the environment and uh, water treaty rights and health and just stuff on the families living there. And so I learned a lot basically by being there. But then I met somebody (laughs) in Austin who is from Mexico, who's now my husband, and had no love of the border whatsoever Mm. at all. I mean, he grew up in Monterrey in Northern Mexico So for him, the border was a place where you went and bought a tux for a quinceañera and you kept on going, you know, it was like a border was, the border was like this place that you had to go through to get to some place better, basically. After 20 years, he really appreciates the border now (laughs) because he's had to go there so many times and he's a photographer and he's actually doing his own projects there now and really loves it. But at the time he did not love it at all. And so... So I ended up uh, moving to Austin to be with him. And I ended up going to the legislature and working in the Senate for five years for the Senator from Uh McAllen. So it was a border Senator. So I still learned a lot. I mean, the way I thought about it was, well, I'm still gonna learn a lot about the region I'm interested in, but from a totally different perspective. So I did communications and then I did policy work in the environment and uh, health stuff uh, for the senator. And I learned a lot about how power works, which was really interesting because I got to go behind those doors that were usually usually closed to mm-hmm. reporters and to sort of see up close how the sausage got made. <laughs> and uh, I have to tell you, it was pretty horrifying <laughs>
2: how the sausage got made.
3: <laughs> yeah, I was like, it's a wonder that anything runs a, at all, you know, because you really see how money really moves everything, you know, and people's motivations are usually very uh, self-serving, I guess. So, the you know, the best legislation that would be good, let's say, for cutting down, you know, air pollution or whatever would just fail year after year after year, because the oil and gas companies run, you know, the government more or less. So what they say goes. And so it was pretty horrifying. So uh, I would call the Texas Observer all the time and just be like, you guys got to get down here. (laughs) This is horrible. I can't believe it. You know, I and I would like leak them stuff, you know, and and often my my boss would let me do it. He was pretty good about that. I mean, he was a former Vietnam vet and a migrant farm worker. And so he was a pretty cool guy. So I was just always calling them. And, they, you know, they had a small staff. And they finally said, damn, why don't you just come down here yourself and write the stories? We're getting tired of you calling <laughs> us. And they got a, uh, a grant to fund an investigative reporter for two years. And I guess this is, what, 2007? So Jake Bernstein at the time was the editor and he said, look, I've got a two-year grant for an investigative reporter. I can promise you two years. And it was like $10,000 less a year than what I was making at the Capitol. But I was like, yeah, I want to I do this. So uh, instead of becoming a rich lobbyist, like most of the people did that I worked <laughs> with, who are now making like, you know, six-figure sums of money, I took a $10,000 pay cut and went to the <laughs> Texas Observer and wrote grants to be able to actually do my job and yeah and i stayed there for 10 years so two years turned into 10 years <laughs>
2: the Observer. I feel like it, it looms very large in Texas, but some people outside of Texas might not know it that well. Just describe sort of what what the Texas Observer is.
3: I mean, it was basically the only, it is the only statewide progressive nonprofit magazine in Texas. Uh, it's the home of Molly Ivins. Um, most people know her outside of mm-hmm. Texas. Great writer, great humorist. And she really left an imprint on it. And it started in the 50s the 1950s, and it's always been sort of the progressive voice of Texas, which is no small task, (laughs) (laughs) let me tell you, because Texas is a real, you know, piece of work. So, yeah, so, I mean, there's a million stories in Texas and, you know, a massive oil and gas industry, repressive, lots of skeletons buried (laughs) everywhere. (laughs) So um, Well, that
2: seems like a challenge when you're given this sort of mandate. To, you're hired as an investigative reporter. Uh, you've got this grant. Go do some investigative reporting. Like, How wide was your purview, and how did you start to define what it was that you wanted to go investigate?
3: Well, of course, I knew I wanted to do the border, and I think one of the first stories I did was on the border wall. And this is when they first started building it in, you know, 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember Jake at the time, the editor, saying to me, I don't know why you want to do a story on the border wall. It's like everybody's already written about it. Well, they call it a border fence back then. And there was a lot of like, you know, Washington Post and New York Times and so forth going in and basically just giving a like we they've built five miles and... People are upset, you know, and then that was it. There had been a lot of it. So he's like, I don't know what you could possibly add. And I said, well, let me just go down there and and see. Let me talk to some people. So I went down to Mission and McAllen, that area where I had worked for the monitor and started talking to landowners and finding all these discrepancies between where they were building the fence and where they were not building it. And so it turned out they were not building it in the Sherryland Plantation, which is an upscale development owned by a big donor to George W. Mm -hmm. Bush. They weren't getting the fence. But then, you know, these working class people just to the east of them were getting it. So why is that? You know, who decides where it gets built and why? So that was my starting question. And so then we discovered this pattern, you know, which the ACLU ended up getting involved and filing a lawsuit, pointing out the discrepancies. And, yeah, so that story got a lot of attention. And then, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, they all came back and did like their version of Mm -hmm. it. Right. Where it just suddenly appeared out (laughs) of thin air. You know, people say there's a discrepancy between, you know, how they do. (laughs)
2: Well, that's one of the things I was really interested in with your reporting is that you have been covering the border for all this time, and it's like you've been there, and all of the issues, there's this sort of deja vu with a lot of the issues, and it's a process question and a kind of emotional question, but how do you deal with this cycle of national interest in border issues that then sort of recedes and the reporters from other places disappear, and then suddenly they're back. And you have this experience of, oh, I broke that story two years ago, or, oh, I've been covering this the whole time. You know, how has that been for you? I guess is my question.
3: It's, uh it can at times be frustrating. I'm not going to lie. But I think as time has gone on, it's just the way it is, you know, and you have to make your peace with it. Because it's. I don't think that's going to change. It, it's been especially strange this last four years, because I've never seen so much attention on the border, and it very much became a political story. So it was like political reporting under the umbrella of immigration reporting. So it was less about the people who are being affected and more about the politics and about Trump. You know, he really overshadowed everything else. So that was interesting, because you feel like the people who are really impacted, the migrants themselves, were sort of, I guess, a side story to the politics, Mm. to the political machinations of, you know, Trump versus whoever, whoever he's attacking at that moment. And then this thing about receiving influxes of people from, Central America or wherever. I mean, that's been going on since the civil wars in the 80s. You mm-hmm. know, it comes like a tide and it recedes like a tide depending on what's happening in those countries. If there's a war going on, if there's uh, economic collapse or if there's a hurricane, people come seeking refuge. What is truly horrible is What's happened to people seeking refuge who've come, you know, who have been turned back or who have been arrested when they've asked for asylum instead of being allowed to go through, you know, the legal process, which Congress has approved for asylum. And, you know, we have international treaties, not to mention, you know, morals and decency and everything else that we're supposed to stand for as a democratic Free country. (laughs) So anyways, it seems like the people sort of got lost in the political shuffle in this war with Trump and him using the border as a backdrop to motivate his base.
2: And do you feel like it seems like it could cut both ways, like something like family separation? A lot of attention comes to it. But, you know, you were reporting on variations on families being separated or kids being unable to be reunited with their parents, you know, a decade ago, not strictly speaking by policy. And then it becomes a kind of almost like a slogan, like kids in cages becomes a sort of political slogan that is sort of divorced from the actual events and the actual people. But does that still feel like a positive aspect of it to you that there's at least attention being paid to something that people didn't pay attention to? Or does it feel like it sort of crosses over into some, Realm where the reporting is lost?
3: Well, I think it's good that it does draw attention to people who normally would not pay any attention at all, I think, to these issues, you know. At some point, though, it becomes theater in some ways, like border theater, you know, where you have both sides sort of battling each other at protests and things with signs. And yeah, you have these kids in cages and stuff sort of gets watered down into, um, slogans. I think the trick is to keep exerting pressure on Congress and the president on the people who can really actually make a difference and stop the suffering. Because I think the theater sort of overtakes everything and then people kind of just go away and they don't maintain the pressure. They don't exert that pressure. It's all about persistence basically. And You know, over the years, it is, it's very cyclical, you know, people get really worked up about something and then they all disappear. And knowing from working in the Texas Senate is that you really, most politicians are reacting to a crisis. Mm -hmm. They're not into prevention or doing things in advance, you know. (laughs) So you really have to light a fire under them and it has to be persistent and it can't, you know, you can't just go away.
2: Do you think you have a policy perspective on what you would like to happen around these issues that is sort of what informs your reporting? Or do you try to sort of keep those ideas out of your thinking and just tell the stories?
3: I think my biggest uh, and something that I learned actually from working in the legislature is that what I really want people to know is the context within which this traumatic event is happening. Like it doesn't have to happen, you know? It's happening because certain people made certain decisions or they made a decision to do nothing. So there are laws, there are policies on the books that are either being ignored or could be changed. In the case of Trump, I think I just read the other day that he made more than 400 changes to immigration Mm. policy using executive authority and by replacing agency heads and so forth. So they turned immigration law into Swiss cheese is what they did in the last four years. And what I want to do in the context of the story is show people like, here's how the law should work, here's why it's not working this way. And here are the people that made these decisions, you know, so you can see for yourself like, you know, Stephen Miller or whoever made this decision with these people to do this. And it doesn't have to be this way.
2: And a lot of your stories also, one thing I really love about your stories is that they tend to ground those policies in deeply reported stories of people who, who live, whether on the border or the border as a wider concept, the people who are affected by it. And, and it's not always just the migrants. There's also the property owners. There's also, there's all these other sort of people involved whose individual stories serve to inform what those policies are doing. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how you find those people and how you choose those stories. Because it's always curious to me sort of how you're able to find them. Like, were you a person who just sort of went around gathering sources and like collecting people who would bring things to you in terms of individual stories? Or would you always go with a kind of targeted idea of who you were looking for?
3: No, I just start talking to people And then they usually point me in the direction of somebody else. And it's mostly just being on the ground and having conversations with people. You know, people who live on the border, you know, and also like immigration lawyers and people like that are very much entrenched in this world, and this area. So if you start talking to them about what they're passionate about, You know, they have all kinds of interesting things to say. And then they say, you know, you should talk to this person. He's really interesting or she's really interesting. And have you heard her story? You know, and I'd be like, no, tell me about it. You know, so it's basically like a chain of just going from one person to the next.
2: Well, one example would be this 2012 series that you did, uh, which won National Magazine Award, about... I still think it's one of the most sort of like multi-dimensional views of these issues where you in four parts you sort of looked at border issues from different perspectives and so maybe to take that as an example is that an idea that you came up with and you kind of knew what stories you wanted to tell or assembled the stories first or did you sort of start with oh, okay here's here's the big picture that i want to tell now i'm going to go find the right stories to fill it in
3: well that story for me goes all the way back to when i worked in the senate because the senator I worked for, represented that mm. area. And so the ranchers came to Austin, to the Capitol with these photographs of human remains. And it was unbelievable. Um, the senator was on the floor, so he couldn't meet with them. So he asked me to meet with the ranchers. And this is uh, Brooks County. It's a, a rural county that's about 60 miles from the border not far from Corpus Christi in that area and it just blew my mind they had all these they were finding all these skeletons and things on their property and what was also mind-blowing is that they were more (laughs) concerned about the damage to their fences and things from the human smugglers who were driving migrants Mm -hmm. through because they were crashing through their fences and things and they felt like they needed to be reimbursed for that. So there were just several things going on at once. I was like, wait a minute. So how long has this been happening? How long have people been dying on your ranches? Oh, it's been going on for a while. Well, why is it not in any newspapers? Why don't we know about this? Well, I don't know. You know, it's private property because private property is, you know, above all else, right? I mean, they don't want people snooping around and so again, Texas Observer, I'm like, you know, they leave these photos. i like, can you leave these photos with me? Because I was just could not believe it. I thought, what the hell? So I called the Texas Observer and I'm like, you guys got to do a story about this. You know, there's like, this is like 2006 hmm. or seven, I think. And I'm like, there are people dying on these ranches, and you know, this isn't even on the border. It's like 60 miles north of the border, and and so. They sent a really great reporter down there, Mary Jo McConaughey, who went down there and I think did one of the first, maybe the first story on the deaths there in Brooks County of migrants. And so, of course I had wanted to do that story, but you know I was in politics at that point, so <laughs> I couldn't do it. So I thought I'm gonna do that story someday. And so when I started there, that was something that I had wanted to do and i needed to raise money for it because it's a non magazine they couldn't even fund my travel to mm. the border and you know texas is so huge i mean el paso is eight hours from austin so i'd always crack up when somebody from new york would be like can you just go down to el paso and do a story you know i'm like el paso is eight hours in another time zone you know so to Brooks County, it was four hours. So I had to stay there for an extended period of time. So anyway, the investigative fund, which I sing the praises of, which is now Type Media Center, they started supporting my work probably around that time. And they funded that reporting. So I just went down there, you know, and I started talking to people and just try to figure out what's going on. And I always I love these multiple perspectives, because I'm trying to get outside of the stereotype, you know, because I'd always joke like there's a Mad Libs for border reporting where, you know, people fly in and they do the chickens pecking in the dust. It's always <laughs> dusty. The border is always dusty, you know, and they kind of fill in the blanks with various adjectives. So I really wanted to have these different points of view. You know, there's the Guatemalan consulate, there's the rancher, you know, there's the sheriff. So there's the migrant family who's lost somebody in the county. Because there are all these different perspectives sort of colliding and coming together, which is really the coolest thing about the border.
2: That seemed to sort of carry forward in other stories of yours. Like there's one called Death on Seven Mile Road about the shooting of migrants from a helicopter by public safety officers. In Texas. And again, it was interesting to me that your move with the story was to trace it all the way back to its origin. So where did people come from and to try to get to the families, but you also were able to unearth the video from the helicopter shooting. Maybe just describe a little bit about what happened in that story.
3: I mean, that was another mind-blowing story where some brilliant person at, you know, the Department of Public Safety, the Texas State Police, decided it would be a good idea to shoot out the tires of moving cars from a helicopter. And it gets even crazier because they had Chris Kyle. Remember the American mm-hmm. sniper mm-hmm. guy? He had his own like uh, private, you know, security business at that time. So he had a contract to train state police to shoot from helicopters at moving cars, and he had this like heavy metal video on his um, website where he had the state police like shooting from a helicopter to like, you know, some heavy metal music, like really badass, kind of over the top stuff. And they didn't tell anybody on the border, like the local police departments and elected officials didn't know that they were doing this. So the only way that we found out about it was that they, the idea was that they would shoot out the tires of drug smugglers as they were coming across with loads of marijuana in the backs of their trucks. You know, cause typically what they'll do is they'll load up the trucks with marijuana and then they'll put a tarp over them and drive it to a house where they'll store it all. And then they'll distribute it from there. So they, uh, were patrolling and the Texas Parks and Wildlife started chasing this kid in a truck who had a tarp over the back of his truck and was, I guess, driving, you know, suspiciously or whatever. So they started this high speed chase and then they called in the helicopter. The helicopter said that they had to shoot because they were coming up to an elementary school, which was also terrible. And they ended up just shooting the truck full of holes. The guy missed the tire. You know, it took him like, I think, 19 shots. And it wasn't bales of marijuana. It was actually a bunch of men from Guatemala who were laying in the back of the truck under a tarp. Uh, They had come across to work. They had jobs waiting for them in New Mm -hmm. Jersey that they were on their way to. And so they ended up killing two people and almost a third and they removed these guys immediately and put them into detention and wouldn't allow any reporters near them. You couldn't interview them or anything and basically tried to sweep it under the rug. And I remember some of the politicians saying, you know, they got what they deserved because they shouldn't have ever crossed illegally. And that was the attitude. That's
2: insane. That A death sentence, extrajudicial death sentence.
3: Yeah, a death sentence. Like, because you came to work and you didn't have permission, it's okay that you should be shot and killed from a helicopter, no less. I mean, it was just insanity, like, all around, you know? And they very quickly suppressed all of it because the driver was, like, 16. So they said to protect you know to protect him since he was a minor they couldn't release any of the uh reports because of course immediately i submitted requests for information you know on the shootings and because there was an investigation that was carried out so they they barred everything they wouldn't release any of it and um so that story took me like 2 years because i just kept requesting information. And so I went to the county because it went before a grand jury in Hidalgo County where the shooting happened. The grand jury didn't go forward with it. And so I requested the information from the attorney there. And they said no again. But then he lost the election. So in the shuffle between him going out and the new guy coming in, they forgot to turn down my request. (laughs) So the Texas Public Information Law says, you know, if you don't tell them within, the, you know, I think it's 30 days or something, why you're not giving them the information, you have to give it to them. So they had to turn everything over to me. (laughs) I have to say that was probably the best day ever of my life in investigative
1: reporting. That's incredible.
3: I walked into a room in Hidalgo County where they just had laid out all the evidence, the videotapes from the helicopter, everything. And it was just an amazing feeling. So I knew once I had that information, I could really tell the story. So then I had to find the families in Guatemala and they lived in the highlands, you know, in Western Guatemala. I mean, it was gonna be really difficult to find them. They'd all been deported. So again, you know, the investigative fund came through and um, funded my trip down there. And through a friend on the border, he knew a woman in Guatemala, who was from the same area, the same region, she was indigenous. And so she went in and found them, you know, for me, and helped me. And uh, we went up there, you know, very rugged. In the mountains, we had to be out before it got dark, because they have a lot of problems up there still with, you know, violence and things, because these are sort of autonomous indigenous communities and people are coming in and trying to take advantage of them and stuff. And they have various problems with the government. So yeah, it was amazing that we were able to find them. And I met the families and I got the full story of why they had decided to go. Because it was really important for me to let people know who these people were, you know, why they had come, that they were not a threat. And to just tell the full story and to let them be able to speak too.
2: Yeah, and a multi-year process. I mean, that's longer than people spend on books in some cases.
3: Yeah, no, it took about two and a half years, I think. I mean, I usually have three or four things going at once. You know, there are things I know that are gonna take a long time and then shorter things that I do. You know, there's always that tension with your editor of like, when are you going to turn something in? <laughs> you know? So I have short, medium and long, you know, like, here's something I can give you right now. Here's something that will be ready in two years.
2: <laughs> the other thing that, um, and this kind of takes me to your book, in your book, you also have truly incredible access to, it seems to me, FBI agents, On the other side, so on the law enforcement side, and I'm curious how, as someone who is working for many years for a progressive magazine, who's doing stories that uncover uh, sometimes negative actions by law enforcement, how you then can turn around and sort of get someone at the FBI to say, yeah, sure. I'll tell you every single detail and thought of my story of investigating this drug cartel. And whether you meet skepticism when you come in to try to get that cooperation.
3: Well, I think anybody in in that world, you know, what they do, they know what they do really well. And so when you approach them, I think you have to show a respect for what they do and that you've done your homework and that you understand. You know, they don't have to bring you up to speed and explain every little thing to you because then they're doing your job, you know, for you. So I think I always come into something where I do a lot of research in advance. I understand the territory and sort of the world so that I can kind of meet them on their own level, you know, and acknowledge what they do and say, hey, you know, these guys are scary, that's no small task, you know, what you did and just sort of acknowledge their achievements. And then I think there's a sort of mutual trust built and respect. I always explain to them the process, too, and and I tell them the truth. You know, I think for many people that journalists come across, like journalism is a real mystery to them, like how we do Mm -hmm. our jobs. And all they know is what they see on TV or the movies where... Journalists are really pushy, they're sticking a microphone in their face and they just want something and then they're going to go away and you'll never see them again. You know, so I always explain to everybody. I mean, my ideal situation is I like to work on something for a while and develop a relationship and just sort of explain to them how I work. And I don't want them to be surprised by anything. I mean, this, of course, it's a different case, right, for an adversarial situation like. I mean, I write about the Zetas in that book and they've killed a lot of journalists, actually. So that was a whole different sort of dynamic, (laughs) of course. But with the agents, I think they respected the fact that I understood their world, you know, and that it was going to be a process that we were going to talk over several months. And I think, too, I mean, they go through so much and they don't really have anybody to talk to. It's a lot like journalists, you know, we see a lot of terrible stuff and you can't go home and talk about that to your family. They don't wanna hear it. So it can be nice, I think, to be able to talk to somebody about it and they understand what you're talking about and sort of what it feels like. So I think a lot of times it's sort of a mutual thing, you know?
2: And maybe give just a very quick thumbnail uh, of the book, just for listeners who haven't read it.
3: Yeah, well, the book is called Bloodlines. And so what it does is it traces this investigation into the leaders of the Zetas cartel, which was sort of the first cartel to really, I guess, change the dynamic of the drug war because they really used mass executions and torture and public displays of hanging bodies and things like that to sort of terrorize the population and their competitors uh, so that they could become more powerful and take over more territory. And at one point, they pretty much had half of Mexico and Sinaloa cartel had the other half. This is around like, you know, 2010, about 10 Mm -hmm. years ago. And so the leader of the cartel's brother uh, was living in Texas, and they were building this sort of horse racing empire through quarter horse racing, which is a big, big thing in, you know, the southern United States and in Mexico and Brazil. You can make hundreds of thousands of dollars. There's, you know, million dollar purses and they were funneling their drug money into these really high dollar race horses and so i'm tracing the investigation that the fbi and the irs do into sort of dismantling this empire that the zetas are building through horse racing and they're breeding horses and they're selling them and in the process you know people are being killed and extorted and all these horrible things are happening
2: And you you mentioned the their sort of rise to power and the and the the mass executions and how do you kind of balance writing about, reporting on, and describing the real, like truly astounding atrocities that happen against, you know, tipping too far into something that's just sort of feels like violence porn or is you know, there are these kind of publications that just sort of recount these Episodes, these sort of horrific killings and in a non-reported kind of way. And I'm curious how how you kind of like balance that in even writing about them. I mean, they're just, they're hard to describe. They're so unfathomable in terms of what they do to people.
3: Yeah, no, it is unfathomable. Um, I try to dig deeply into personal stories so that you can really see the fallout from either being involved in that type of violence or or having to try to stop it it's basically like staying after everybody leaves mm-hmm. you know for the fallout and and just sort of how that ripples through society how it ripples through a family how it sort of just destroys things and so it's sort of the emotional journey you know i i mostly trace you know the primary agent's emotional journey in the FBI as he is trying to unravel this case and sort of the impact it has on him. And then on the female agent, especially also because she has family in Mexico and, you know, it's much more closer and personal to her. So yeah, it's important to be able to have the access to somebody who's in that world where you can really unravel those feelings and get beyond the stereotypes and beyond, you gotta get behind the body count numbers, you know? So much of drug war reporting is 113 people found in a mass grave, and that's all it is. And you have to, it can be much more powerful to focus on one person than it can to say 113 people in a mass grave, you know? Why not just follow one person who lost somebody? in that grave or you know that's going to have a lot more impact i think so it's looking for ways to get people to have some empathy or to put themselves in the shoes of somebody in that situation
2: and what does that sort of do to you having to trace down those stories what kind of a cruel effect do you think it has on you
3: oh not a good one (laughs) yeah um I did the DART fellowship for um, trauma and, and reporting. And I did that a few years ago. I think like from 2010 to 2012 was especially bad because that's when the drug war got really bad in Mexico. And it really changed a lot for people who report there, you know? We really had to change the way we did things. For the first time, I felt unsafe, you know, that something could happen to me that I could get picked up and never be seen again. So that's a weird feeling because I'm, I'm very much feel like a domestic reporter, you know, I mean, I did another story called the Valley of Death, I think in 2012, where I had to go into these small towns outside of Ciudad Juarez that had been completely burned to the ground by, you know, the Sinaloa cartel, And I mean, you literally cross the bridge, you know, I think I went to Starbucks before I crossed the bridge. (laughs) And then all of a sudden you're driving into a military checkpoint and just these towns that look like something out of a war zone, you know? So it's this really strange whiplash that you get. And since I worked for a small nonprofit magazine, I didn't have a lot of support. I had to figure out a lot of it just by talking to a fellow journalists and on my own. And how do I deal mm-hmm. with this? You know, how do I, how do I decide whether I want to do this story or not? And what does it mean? You know, if something happens to me or why am I doing this story? Why am I putting myself in this situation? So, yeah, so it, it definitely had its impact. And so I did that fellowship in New York and it was very helpful, I think, because I mean, I was in there with war photographers and stuff, and I thought, "This is I cannot believe I'm here with these people who really, truly have been seeing some horrible, horrible stuff. But then as we were all talking, you know, because some of us are just domestic, you know, we've covered... I mean, even a normal journalist, you cover house fires, you cover a lot of people on their worst day of their lives, basically, mm-hmm. and you have to go in there and and interview them about it. So... So we all figured out, oh, yeah, you know, we have some residual effects and we've seen some pretty terrible stuff. And so how do you process that and how do you not take it home to your family, you know, because I don't want to deal with that at the dinner table. (laughs) And you, uh, you know, and a lot of people drink or they medicate and you don't want to do that. So I have to say I probably try to... Balance it out, I guess, with some lighter stuff. <laughs>
2: <laughs> in terms of work or in terms of life?
3: Both, I think.
2: Uh huh. Uh huh.
3: Yeah, to find the balance, you know?
2: So, something that I've been asked before, and because I don't have a good answer for it, I like to ask it, even though I'm sure you've been asked it many times, which is when you've done reporting in which there was some security question, question of danger, particularly vis-a-vis these drug cartels, but in other environments too. How do you make the choices that you make in terms of how far you're going to pursue a story and what risks you're willing to take? You know, where do you draw those lines? You have hard and fast rules or it's story by story. You know, you, in a lot of these pieces you've done, there are real threats to journalists and journalists that have been killed pursuing similar stories. So how does that weigh in your, in your mind when you're, when you're reporting?
3: Well, it's story by story. And I really rely heavily on the local community, on local reporters in those areas, or human rights folks, and so forth. So I I talk to a lot of people in those communities or try to, in advance to just find out the situation, you know, how would I be received if I came in and I really wanna sing the praises of the local journalists, especially in Mexico or in Guatemala, whose lives are under like daily, daily mm-hmm. threat, you know? Because they're really the, the heroes. I mean, I, I come from a place of privilege, of course, being from the United States. So they're taking a, uh, a risk by helping me. And so I have to acknowledge that too. So I have to also take into account Am I risking anything for the sources I'm going to talk to, for the people who are going to help me in advance of deciding whether it's a good idea or not?
2: And do you have stories that you've really, really wanted to do or maybe even parts of your book that you decided not to pursue because they it was just too dangerous?
3: Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, talking to some people in the Zetas, I, I tried. Uh, but to only to a certain extent, right? Because it's just really dangerous, I guess, going further into the organization, further up the trail, you know? I think in the early 2000s, you could do it, but since the violence got really bad around 2010, it's just too fragmented now, and there are too many moving parts and too many leaders who are killed and then there's a new person and you know it used to be there was the guy that you could talk to and if they said okay you know you might be able to do it but those people come and go so quickly now and it's so uh volatile that i think it's much harder to get in there and get out without you know risking your life
2: (laughs) And how do you ward off cynicism about it?
3: Or do you? Uh, I think it's harder not to be cynical just about journalism (laughs) these days. What a masochistic profession. (laughs) Like, how do we even make a living? Why why am I still doing this? Especially at my age, why am I doing this to myself? My issues are more probably with the industry itself than with any of the stories, you know? I mean, I will keep telling these stories until... I die, but it's a question of whether I can pay my bills or not in the process.
2: (laughs) Well, when you, just to return to the questions you said, you know, when things started getting unsafe, you had to ask these questions, you know, why am I doing this type of reporting? What, what are your answers? What do you tell yourself about why you're doing it?
3: Well, I think cause it just, you know, it goes back to working in the Senate and seeing these things happening and people just not being informed and not really, understanding what was being done in their name, you know, by people who supposedly represented them, but didn't really, they represented, you know, big interests, corporations and money, they didn't really represent the people that had voted them in there. And I would say it's even gotten worse now with the information overload and all the misinformation is that people are really confused about who is responsible, you know, how did it turn out this way? And why? I mean, I remember having conversations. I'd answer the phone in the senator's office and somebody would be yelling at me as I picked up the phone about some, you know, bill or something they were upset about. And I'd be trying to explain to them, well, that that actually went through Congress. That's a federal, you know, thing. It's not a state thing. And then they would yell at me some more about how I was just trying to deflect, you know, and not take responsibility. And it's just I don't know if it's it's a result of our um, public school education or something, but I really don't think we get enough of an understanding growing up of how the system works, how politics works, you know? I certainly didn't understand it. I'm embarrassed to say, and I was a journalist already until I actually started working in politics. Did I really understand it?
2: But it's also, I feel like even if you understand it or think you understand it, it feels to me like it can still surprise you. Like reading your recent story about Sergio Garcia, this public defender who was sort of roped into the original family separation policy under the Trump administration trying to figure out what was going on when they were piloting the program. Even that, I I mean, it shouldn't have surprised me, but did you know going in this idea that they piloted the program and basically everyone involved said, this is terrible, including the people on the enforcement side said this is not working. This is a terrible idea. This is bad for enforcement in addition to being inhumane. And then suddenly they were just doing it everywhere. Did you already know that story when you started
3: working on this? I mean, I knew bits and pieces of it. And again, it's another one of those mind blowing things, you know, like it's everybody on the ground who actually knows what they're doing is saying this is a bad idea. And it's just a purely political move. And it doesn't matter if the president says this is what I want to happen, and you know Stephen Miller and those guys that advise him. I mean, it was their decision, and they made it. And anybody who got in their way, they basically got rid of them. And, you know, it's just purely political
2: and deliberate,
3: and very deliberate. Like
2: it takes away any idea that it was it somehow they stumbled into it.
3: Yeah, and and it's just uh, infuriating, you know. So I think these next several years, I think we should just be doing stories like that of unraveling this mess and naming names. You know, like this is who made the decision. This is why they made the decision. This is when they made the decision. And this is what happened.
2: And that takes me to a question I was very interested to ask just in terms of the changeover in our national leadership. And it seems like we may again go through one of these cycles where people who were intensely interested in border issues may no longer be interested in border issues, or at least the spotlight might turn away. So what do you think, where does it sort of go from here in terms of reporting on the things that you've been reporting on for many, many years?
3: Um, I think the spotlight will turn away again. During Obama, a lot of terrible things happened on the border. I mean, they called him the deporter in chief. I mean, you know, Close to 2 million people, I think, were deported at that time. But it was hard to really get editors and outlets that interested in it, you know? I mean, there was some interest, of course. And so I think we're going to kind of go back to some interest, but not that much. Which I really think now is when we should really be focusing on it. Because none of it's gone away, and it's all going to have to be unraveled, you know, all of these changes that were made from the executive and through firing agency heads and through policy. Because a lot of really severe or impactful changes can be made just at the policy level within the agency itself without even telling mm. Congress. So a lot of that is has been done and is being done probably now up until january 20th you know i mean with the border wall they uh committed the government to contracts with the wall without even getting uh, permission from the landowners in some cases for the land they've already rushed to commit the government in these contracts so they're either going to have to settle with these contractors to get out of the additional miles or they're going to have to fulfill the contracts so that's going to go on for years because a lot of the landowners don't want to give over their land and haven't even been contacted but they're slated to have wall built through their property.
2: And for you, I mean you're not living in Texas anymore, but do you feel like the border will remain your focus or do you ever think I want to move on to reporting on something else, you know, where do you, where do you think you're going from here?
3: Well, I'm heading directly to tucson <laughs> so i'll be even closer to the border uh yeah no I'll, I'll keep reporting on the border for sure but i you know i'd like to do some other stuff too i just did a story um on fort hood and the mm-hmm. military yeah i saw that the army and i think increasingly my specialty is becoming like toxic workplace environments <laughs> especially uh with uh, big government agencies like the Border Patrol, I've done a lot on the Border Mm -hmm. Patrol, Department of Homeland Security, which is a complete and total mess right now, the US Army, because they always have these similarities. Like as I was doing the story on Fort Hood and just sort of the failures and leadership there and the toxic environment and so forth, it reminded me so much of the Border Patrol and the stories I've done there. I I guess I'm just really interested in people and how they work together. And when things go wrong, why do they go wrong? And how can it be fixed, basically? So uh, obviously, the U.S. military is fertile territory for all of that. (laughs) I mean, (laughs) there's a lot there. Sadly,
2: if you're on the toxic workplace beat, there seems to be no shortage of toxic workplaces to investigate.
3: I even joke I have my own, my own genre name for that. It's called bureaucracy noir. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. it's
2: strange to say I look forward to more of your reporting on that because that's not necessarily the most pleasant uh, thing to be reporting on. But I do. I always look forward to your reporting. And I really appreciate that you uh, took the time to talk.
3: Yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
2: That's it for this week's Long Form Podcast. I am your co-host, Evan Ratliff. Thanks again to Melissa for coming on the show from Mexico City. Her book, again, if you want to check it out, is called Bloodlines, The True Story of a Drug Cartel, the FBI, and the Battle for a Horse Racing Dynasty. Thanks to my co-hosts, Max Linsky and Aaron Lammer, to our editor, Janelle Pfeiffer, to our intern, Susan Peterson, and appreciate, as always, our sponsor, MailChimp. We will see you next week.